millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastick. If I'm picking berries and two people go running by me screaming, it's better for my survival to follow along with what they're doing rather than risk getting eaten by a mountain lion. Similarly, if all my friends are smoking, odds are I'm going to pick up smoking too. It seems intuitively obvious that my decisions don't occur in a void. As a multitude of social science experiments show, from Stanley Milgram's infamous prison experiment on, our environments hugely influence the way we behave. But the opposite is also true. To put it another way, our social behaviors are contagious. And right now, our environments are encouraging us to behave in all kinds of terrible ways, from tax evasion to wasteful energy use to living in giant houses. In his new book, Under the Influence, Putting Peer Pressure to Work, Cornell economist and New York Times columnist Robert H. Frank combines this psychological insight with economics to argue that we can't just treat members of society as individuals when looking at their economic decisions. Robert H. Frank's work takes the insight of behavioral contagion to its next logical step, which is to say that we should use these insights about peer pressure to shape society in the direction we want it to go by using government policies and, especially, taxes in a much more clever and targeted way than before. Robert H. Frank joins us from the studios of Cornell University, where he is the H.J. Lewis Professor of Management and Professor of Economics. Thanks so much for talking to me. It's a pleasure, Stephanie. Thank you for having me on. So it seems pretty obvious from a psychological standpoint that our decisions are influenced by other people in good, bad, and neutral ways. But you write that economists and public policymakers still operate without taking social context into account, and sometimes write policies assuming that economic decisions occur in a void. Mm-hmm. So why does peer pressure retain the kind of poisonous connotation it has for economists as it does for kids doing drugs? Yeah, you're you're definitely onto something there. It had, the, the term itself has a very distinctly negative valence uh, in in our culture. You know, it's, it's, it's a question I'm still struggling with. Uh, I mean, here's what we know. We know that the social environment has a profound influence on us. Uh, whether your uh, son or daughter will smoke is predicted not by knowing things about what kind of personality traits or character traits they have, but it's very well predicted by the proportion of their friends who smoke. 
the social environment uh, influences us for ill, as in that case, but often for good. Uh, that's completely uncontroversial. Uh, I think it's less widely noted, uh, but also uncontroversial to note that the social environment itself is a consequence of the individual choices that we make. So what's the smoking rate? It's just the sum of all our decisions about whether to smoke. Most people, of course, don't take any account of their effect on the social environment because it's so small. But Together, we make up the social environment, and uh, it would be a good thing if we acted as if we cared about how our choices would affect the social environment. And so far as I was able to discover, nobody has seriously grappled with the question of whether there are simple policies we could adopt that would encourage people to do that. So where do you see these kinds of interventions being most helpful based on the idea of social contagion? Uh, well, we, we had a really very vivid test case in the smoking example that I mentioned just now. It, it was not until the Japanese came up with studies showing that secondhand smoke contributed to various illnesses that the regulators felt emboldened to try to do something about smoking. Uh, I think there's always been, more in this country than in, in many others, a reluctance to tax or regulate. Uh, we don't like to be told by the government what to do. Uh, if, if we're willing to tolerate it, it's because of the John Stuart Mill harm principle. Uh, you can do whatever you want as long as you don't cause harm to others. So finally, the regulators had an excuse to regulate because sidestream smoke harmed others and they had no recourse. You couldn't really organize your life very, very well to avoid it. But it turns out that sidestream smoke is a, a minuscule injury to others compared to the, the injury from actually being a smoker. Uh, now, of course, Mill would have said, it's not the government's job to protect you from yourself. Uh, that's that's a, a point I resonated with when I read Mill in high school, but I think what we've learned in behavioral science in the century or so since he was writing is that it's a more interesting question than he had any way of realizing. You know, does my current self have legitimate reasons to wish that I had been restrained uh, as a young person from doing things that je jeopardized my current health? Uh, that, that's an interesting question. I don't think we really have a, a clear answer to it yet. But quite apart from that, the real harm that you cause if you smoke is to make other people more likely to smoke. There, too, you could say, well, that's their problem to deal with. They don't have to follow your example. Uh, and and I, I like the sentiment that motivates that response. But Think about the parents who don't want their kids to grow up to be smokers. That's a legitimate aspiration on their part, surely. Uh, they do everything they can beyond a certain point. If they try harder to discourage their kids from smoking, they'll be more likely to smoke. And so what's absolutely certain is that if there are more smokers in their environment, they will be more likely to smoke, and many of them will smoke. And don't we want to count the injury suffered by those parents, the, the ones who tried everything they could to achieve a, a, a worthy goal but failed to do it? Uh, that's an injury. And then you have to weigh against that, that injury. What would be the cost of actually making life better for those parents? Uh, I, I'm very happy that none of my four adult sons is a smoker. Uh, and the reason they're not a smoker is that we took those steps to reduce the smoking rate from 
above 60 percent when I, I was a teenager to, to now around 13 or 14 percent. Uh, no, nobody out there says we shouldn't have done that. Oh, that was a, a, a bad change to have made. And there are lots and lots of steps like that we can take in other arenas. So we, we subsidize the installation of solar panels. Uh, that has a direct effect. People are more likely to install them if you do that. But but then others see them do it, and that's one of the very most contagious things out there in the energy arena. People are much, much more likely to install a solar panel if they've seen a neighbor do so. So, so there are lots of steps like that we can take, and we ought to at least think about taking them. And so would you contend that including the idea of behavioral contagion expands the idea of what behaviors do harm? Oh, Absolutely. We affect the social environment. The social environment affects us. Sometimes it affects us for ill, as in the smoking case. Sometimes it affects us for the better, as when it encourages us to install solar panels, for example. Uh, And we have an interest in it in both of those cases. It's only when the social environment has no effect on us would we have no interest in it. And and then it, it becomes just a practical question. I think trying to decide these issues by slogans about freedom uh, just is the wrong way to think about them. Uh, it's always a question of defining a right, costs, resources, and what could you do with those same resources if you didn't define the right to smoke whenever and wherever you wanted to without any penalty for doing it. That kind of cost-benefit analysis seems really pertinent when it comes to climate change, which is kind of the ultimate present-slash-future self, short-slash-long-term benefit analysis that we're so bad at, as our likelihood to smoke and equal likelihood to regret smoking shows. So how do you see behavioral contagion being a useful concept with regards to climate change policy? You know, I, as an economist, I, I long shared the conventional wisdom in my profession that these voluntary steps people take to lower their carbon footprint were mainly a distraction, that unless we adopt a a really stiff carbon tax, unless we make massive investments in in decarbonizing our energy sources, we're not going to begin to solve the problem. I've, in the process of studying behavioral contagion, completely abandoned my skepticism about those individual steps. Uh, I mentioned solar panels. They're very contagious. The negative steps are contagious, too. So people bought bigger cars starting in the 1980s, and then suddenly, if you didn't have a a 7,000-pound SUV, you were worried you were going to get crumpled by one driving your normal-sized car. So now more and more people have those cars. The end result of that is that everybody's at greater risk of injury and death in auto accidents than if everybody drove small cars. And in the process, we've befouled the air way more than we needed to. It would be quite easy to reverse the cascade that led to those uh, massive sales of SUVs. If we taxed vehicles by weight, for example, uh, many people would say to themselves, well, do I really need a a vehicle of this size? I'll save the money by not having to pay that tax. I'll buy a smaller car. Then others would feel less at risk because of the big cars they were uh, worried about being hit by. They'd buy smaller, and we'd see that cascade move in reverse. Those things happen only in part because we didn't put the right carbon price on the activities. They're happening because other people do them. 
And if we pushed back against those with tax policy and social messaging, I think we could get a, a lot more leverage than, than most people seem to realize. The direct effects are maybe small, but the, the, the first steps encourage others to, to take similar steps. And so there's a multiplier effect, often, often uh, much, much larger than the initial effect. The other thing is that when you take those steps, uh, that changes who you are. Uh, we don't come into the world pre-wired with identities and preferences. That's the standard economic assumption. We constantly construct and revise who we are. And taking these individual steps to lower your carbon footprint makes you into more of a climate advocate than you were initially. But beyond that, the money we need to raise to make the, the massive investments, it's, it's on the order of a World War II level mobilization. We're talking several trillion dollars a year. Most people think, oh, we'd have to make uh, incredibly painful sacrifices to do that. Uh, but in fact, the answer is we wouldn't. Uh, the, the behavioral contagion influence on our spending means that we spend our money in ways that, that are profoundly wasteful and would be easy to change. So the one robust finding that we have from the very large and contentious literature on human happiness determinants is that beyond a certain point, and we've long since passed it in the West, uh, additional across-the-board increases in many forms of private consumption don't do anything for anybody. They just raise the bar that defines what people consider adequate. And so when the mansions all grow from 10,000 to 15,000 square feet, the rich people who live in them are not only not any happier, they're less happy than before because of the extra hassle of managing the bigger properties. And so it would be quite easy through changes in the tax system to, to channel $2 trillion a year into the investments we need to make, and nobody would have to give up anything important. You know, the, the things that the wealthy want to buy, they're mostly things that are in scarce supply. Uh, everybody wants them, a sweeping view of, of the city from your penthouse. Well, to get those, you have to outbid other people like you who want them. And what determines whether you can do that is your relative bidding power. And here's the thing most people don't really grasp. When your taxes go up and the taxes of people like you go up, your relative bidding power stays exactly the same as before. Uh, and so those choice apartments with the sweeping views end up in exactly the same hands after a tax increase as they would have uh, before. So no, no painful sacrifices. Why not do it? And these kinds of taxes, these penalties on bad behavior are called Paguvian taxes, right? I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Yeah, that's after A.C. Pagu, the British economist, who said that the reason people pollute is because it's costly not to. And if we want to cut pollution, the best way to do that is to charge people according to how much pollution they emit. That's the, the fairest, most efficient way to attack that problem. And the claim I try to defend in the book is that the way we influence social environments, those are externalities too. I call them behavioral externalities. And we ought to develop policies for dealing with them exactly analogous to the ones that we all agree are the best ones for dealing with traditional forms of pollution and other externalities. I mean, it's so interesting to pair that approach with the idea of individual 
changes because both of those things are criticized across the political spectrum, right? The more conservative fiscal forces will say, well, any kind of taxation is bad. You know, this limits people's individual freedom. But those on the left would say, well, individual changes aren't going to matter. We need structural change. Right, right. It's a really interesting marriage of those two to say that, well, actually, if we combine them, we can do it all. And, and I think you want to uh, be very clear that the people who describe all taxation as theft don't really merit a seat at the table in this conversation. Uh, imagine a government that didn't tax. It, it, you, well, you wouldn't have a government if you didn't tax. You wouldn't have an army. You'd be invaded by some other country that had an army, and then you'd be paying taxes to that government. So uh, to say we don't need to tax, that's just a non-starter. The only interesting questions are, what should we tax and at what rates? Uh, uh, and, and those are contentious, but the, the part that's not contentious in, in that slice of the discussion is that we should tax activities that cause harm to others because th- that not only raises revenue, which we need to do, it discourages the activities that are harming people. Uh, so it's two birds with one stone. and. Every dollar you raise from a tax on a harmful activity is a dollar you can reduce the tax on a beneficial activity. We tax payrolls. Why should we be discouraging firms from hiring workers? That's a crazy thing to be doing. So what kind of examples would you offer up to skeptics of taxing negative behavior, that it does actually work and produce the kinds of results that we'd like to see in the climate crisis? Well, I think a good example is congestion pricing. Uh, This has been long decried by critics as uh, imposing an unfair burden on low-income people. Uh, In fact, Stockholm adopted congestion pricing not long ago against very fierce opposition. It's been in effect for long enough now for it to be clear that virtually everybody thinks it's a good idea, even the motorists who are paying substantially larger shares of the congestion fees because they have no alternative but to drive during peak hours. If we taxed carbon, uh, people complain, uh, oh, you're, you're crazy if you propose doing that. Uh, people in other jurisdictions have tried it and they've been voted out of office. I think it's political malpractice of the highest order that the people who propose carbon taxes don't take the time necessary to explain to voters that a revenue-neutral carbon tax would leave 80 to 90 percent of all voters with more money in their pockets than before. Worldwide, the top 10 percent of the income distribution uses half of the total energy. It's not quite that skewed in the U.S., but it's skewed here, too. Most of the revenue from a carbon tax would come from very high-income voters. They're the ones who would get most of the benefit from environmental cleanup, so I'm not going to play my violin uh, worrying about them. Everyone else, if you give the revenue that people contribute to the carbon tax back to middle and low-income families in equal uh, monthly checks, you'd have 80 or 90 percent of the people getting more money back each month than they'd paid in. And you wouldn't have to be a political genius to make that an attractive proposition to the voters. I can't understand why we haven't been doing that more forcefully. Yeah. I mean, I think underlying all of this is something that you've alluded to, um, which is the criticism that, of course, any kind of regulation of this kind on the free market would be interfering with its natural tendency to promote the common good 
in that like this is Adam Smith's invisible hand, right? That yes. people acting in their own self-interest will naturally do things that will, in the end, work out for the common good. And you disagree. You know, Adam Smith's modern disciples uh, think that he believed that all you had to do was turn selfish people loose in the marketplace, and that would automatically result in the greatest good for the greatest number. Uh, Smith did not believe that. Smith, uh, if he were alive today, would be classified as a whiny liberal, probably. Uh, he, he saw many ways in which the market did not deliver results that were best for society. He was in favor of a, a broad swath of regulations. His insight was important. Uh, to him, it was interesting that when selfish people acted in their own interest, you often did get good results for society as a whole. And I think the fact that we're so much richer now than we were in Smith's day is exactly a consequence of his invisible hand idea stated in that more cautious way. But, but what we know from behavioral science is that there are just a whole spectrum of cases in which what it makes sense for you to do as an individual adds up to a whole that none of us likes. I think the simplest example maybe is the, the familiar stadium metaphor. Everybody stands up to get a better view. Nobody sees any better than if everybody had remained comfortably seated. Uh, it, you're not irrational to have stood. You don't regret having stood. If your alternative is to remain seated and not see at all. But in situations like that, you can't solve problems like that on your own. You need to act collectively. Government is not always the, the agent necessary to, to manage collective action, but it's often the most efficient one. So, I mean, within the realm of public policy and using government to sort of effectively shape policies that regulate the common good and individual behavior, what's the biggest insight you'd like people to pull from your work sort of marrying um this psychological understanding with economic understanding. How do you want to see this executed in the realm of public policy? There's a term, uh, it, it doesn't seem to be broadly familiar, but the venture capitalists use it. Uh, they call it a green field. Uh, it means a, a, a wide open field for new investment. So when the iPhone first came out, there were probably dozens of products or services that couldn't have existed before that, but which suddenly were possible when everybody had a smartphone. The notion that we could achieve our goals more effectively if we tried to structure social environments so that they worked with us rather than against us is a, is a public policy green field. And, and I would just uh, like nothing better than to see smart people start thinking about how to, how to make the best use of it. Well, I mean, speaking of green fields, that segues nicely into one of the subjects that you talk quite a bit about in the book, which is the Green New Deal, um, which is a policy proposed that would introduce sweeping changes, both in uh, environmental regulation and in job creation and all of these things. And a lot of people, perhaps disingenuously or ingenuously, are concerned about what that would cost, how we'd fund it, how that would work, et cetera. Would you contend that the Green New Deal is also a kind of green field for policy? Yeah, I think critics of the Green New Deal, and, and you have to realize not all of them are, are cynical. Uh, many of them are on the left. They think, oh, it's just too ambitious if we tackle inequality and the climate problem uh, at once, then we'll just ensure failure in both domains. That's the, that's the criticism you hear from, from people on the left. 
In fact, uh, if you take behavioral contagion into account fully, it becomes immediately clear that the, the policies you would need to adopt to battle inequality effectively are exactly congruent with the policies that you would need to adopt if you wanted to make a serious assault on warming. So, so mainly the problem is that the income distribution has grown uh, completely top-heavy in the last four decades. All the income gains have gone to people at the top. Uh, the first step you, you would need to take if you want to do something about inequality is to push back against that movement with the tax structure. A wealth tax has been proposed, more progressive income taxes, or my favorite, a steeply progressive consumption tax, would make the, the big gap in purchasing power that has spawned these wasteful expenditure cascades a much less serious problem. It would, at the same time, provide the $2 trillion a year we need to mobilize the economy on a World War II scale to decarbonize. And so the irony in the face of these criticisms is that the Green New Deal actually describes policies in both domains that are just deeply synergistic. We're not going to succeed in either domain unless we adopt the policies necessary to attack the problems in both of them. If I tell you that everyone else is reading Robert H. Frank's new book, Under the Influence, will that make you go out and read it? Consider this peer pressure of the best kind. His work brings together things that should be obvious to us in truly novel ways and that just might give us a way out of our current climate catastrophe. Maybe we can build a better future by building a supportive environment that encourages us to make choices that benefit everyone. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.